0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews. Broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar. Launched in May 2004. Media Matters for America put in place for the first time the means to monitor a cross-section of media outlets for conservative misinformation every day in real time. With us today is Eric Bollard, a senior fellow at Media Matters for America and author of Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush, the first book to demonstrate that for the entire Bush presidency, the news media have utterly failed in their duty as watchdog for the public. Eric Bollert worked for five years as a senior writer for Salon.com, where he worked, wrote extensively about media and politics. Prior to that, he worked as a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. Eric Bollert, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Doing great. Are, you, are, you, are we reaching you in New uh, Jersey?
1: Yeah, beautiful Montclair, New Jersey. Oh,
0: Very good. How, how's the weather there today?
1: It's nice. It's a nice
2: yeah. spring day. Excellent. Oh, no no I, global warming or anything? No, no, it seems nice. <laughs> okay, okay, taking okay. a respite from that, from <laughs> yeah. global warming. I've been to East Montclair. Are you near East Montclair? Uh, no,
1: don't know that one, actually.
0: No. Oh. He's just west of it, Mike.
2: No, see, he must be just
0: <laughs> west yeah. of East yeah. Montclair.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so...
0: Now was Lap Dogs was that that was published in May 2006 am yeah, i correct Yeah just about a year ago Yeah, yeah. very good uh, what i'm wondering right now is since the democrats democrats have been uh taking over congress essentially have you noticed any shift at all in the way media has, has reported
1: Well i think uh i you know i think the press had to pull back at some point i mean when bush started scraping at 30 thirty one thirty two percent in the opinion polls. uh... i mean at some point you have to back off and i think the press certainly has backed off its sort of hero worship coverage that we saw say in two thousand two two thousand three two thousand four uh... but what even so even if you sort of erase this sort of uh... strange hero worship you know carl rove is the smartest man on the planet carl rove can't lose an election i mean if, even if you get rid of those uh, sort of 2005 narratives, what you're, what we still see is this dismissiveness in terms of dealing with Democrats and uh, not treating them with the same respect and sort of attaching these phony narratives. Uh, you know, just one of the silliest ones, we, we recall Nancy Pelosi wanted a big plane to fly to San Francisco.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, that was just classic. And
2: nonsense, they jumped all very, over. Very that.
1: Clinton-esque, yeah. very straight out of the 1990s. The, the stuff we haven't seen, none of the, we never saw any stories like that attached to anyone in the Clinton administration. Pelosi comes in within days. You know, she's being portrayed as, you know, uh, this egomaniac who wants a bigger plane, even though none of it was actually true. So we still see a lot of that. I still think we're going to see a lot of that during the campaign season, which is sort of this uh, pretty stark double standard in terms of how the beltway press deals Republicans and, and Democrats. Uh, but what has, most, for the most part, come to an end is that sort of open uh, hero worship of the Bush White House.
0: And do you think that uh, the public is buying those stories now, though, say the, the uh, Pelosi plane story? No,
1: because if you look at the polling, Nancy Pelosi, and even after that the, uh, barrage of criticism she uh, received in the press for going uh, to Syria, even though uh, Republican le- uh, leaders were also going to Syria to talk to leaders there, um, just amazing amount of negative press she got. Um, her poll numbers are; she's one of the most popular leaders in Washington today. Yeah. Uh, so none of those none of those stories have dented her in any way. So that's the good news. The good news really is that the the public has a pretty good um, radar. Uh, the public was about a year ahead of. Of the press in terms of uh, dealing with Bush, I think the, the the public really gave up on the Bush presidency probably in the summer of 2005, um, uh, or yeah, I think in the summer of 2005. Mm-hmm. If you look at the polling, and it took the press about a year to come around to the same notion that the Bush presidency was in trouble. The, the American public gave up on the war easily a year before. You know, um, Beltway Press Corps. Uh, decided that was okay to say that out loud. Um, so that's the good news, that they can see through it. The bad news is, you know, the press is supposed to help the public educate itself, and it, it seems like a lot of the time the public does it in spite of the press.
2: I'd go back even a little further during the uh, during the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Oh, yeah, sure. I just I remember watching, um, you know, the MSNBCs, the CNNs, and Foxes, and almost every night there were a couple of people on the talking heads on Saying, basically saying, you idiots! Can't you see that he should be impeached? And then you'd see these poll numbers at sixty, sixty-five percent. And it was a nightly and a nightly diet of people telling me, "Don't you see? Can't you don't you get it? What's wrong with the public?" And and, it, and it, so I, I this is, I think, what you're talking about is the yeah. public is able to see through some of this.
1: Yeah. It's funny, just a quick point during the impeachment. I mean, those polls would come out, and, and the press would they were just, what, just wait for bated breath, yeah. hoping, yeah. finally, yeah. you know, this magic poll was going to come out where, Bush, where Clinton lost 18% of All his right. approval rating overnight. And, you know, they just never materialized, and the press sort of sat and stewed, and I think they got— they took the revenge on uh, Al Gore during his campaign.
2: Yeah. Uh, this is one thing uh, um, that uh, your, your colleague, did, uh, David Brock, wrote a book on the Republican noisemaker machine. And um, I think this is the effect of it is is that these these issues or these issues, these uh, stories that get thrown out here, like the Nancy Pelosi, and you get the echo machine going. You get right. this sort of echo chamber effect. And what, what it, it seems to me, and then they do the poll to see what happened. It does seem like they're looking for the soft spot all the time. They're constantly looking for this sort of some kind of underbelly or a soft spot on, on within the political um, uh, the political class here, and then they just seize on it and just run with it and drive us all crazy having to listen to the same story over and over again.
0: We're speaking with Eric Bollert, uh, the author of Lap Dogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. Now, I'm just wondering, as far as, as lap dogs go, uh, what? Why are they lap dogs? Is it is it simply that they want to uh, please their bosses, or is there something else going on in in just the the training the journalists get? Are they lazy?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of reasons during the Bush years. One um, is you know conservatives have been waging this war against the press for forty years since Spiro Agnew yeah. uh, was decrying the negative uh, press. Uh, and it has it's, it's picked up momentum, particularly online, with a lot of the incredibly overheated rhetoric of, you know, the Michelle Malkins of the world. Uh, the, I mean, the, the really rabid conservatives don't even talk about liberal bias anymore. They really talk about how the press is unpatriotic, how it's un-American, how it's aiding the enemy in Iraq. So they've sort of taken this rhetoric and, and sort of gone into another stratosphere. And obviously in uh you know in a wartime setting after 9/11 and after the invasion of Iraq um I think I think journalists were very nervous. I I compared them to Democrats, you know, in <laughs> 2003. I mean, they were looking for cover. You know, they did not want to be on the wrong side of this issue. Obviously, journalists aren't supposed to uh worry about opinion polls and they're not supposed to worry about being unpopular but I think a lot of, particularly the, a lot of the pundits and the columnists during the run-up to the war uh, acted like a lot of um, Democratic leaders, and, you know, they, they were sort of carving out a soft spot. And, again, I think it's because this charge of liberal bias, I mean, it can do, it can do severe career damage, uh, and so what, what develops is sort of the spoken and unspoken guidelines in terms of what you can and cannot talk about and certainly in the early and the mid part of the Bush years, when you went on TV, you talked about how authentic George Bush was, how he didn't care about polling, um, how uh, he was very disciplined on his message machine and, and things like that. And um, so that that was the atmosphere that sort of grew out of, um, out of the liberal media charge. And I also think just in general, uh, journalists really have um, – Hold Republicans in awe, uh, particularly when they play hardball. Uh, they find that um, that sort of Machiavellian approach that Karl Rove takes. Um, journalists are just for some for some reason are just wildly impressed by that, and uh, and, and sort of stand back and applaud it.
2: I find, yeah, I, I agree with that. This is by the way, we're speaking with Eric Bowler, and the book is Lapdogs: How the Press Rolled Over. For Bush, and I want to just kind of use as a counterpoint something that happened just last weekend, which is the the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year was Stephen Colbert who right. came out and basically, in my mind, did one of the more one of the braver things that I've seen during the Bush years, which was really to call him out to his face right. in a way that,
1: as well as the press,
2: mm-hmm. as well as the press, and the reaction from the mainstream press was to marginalize really mention as little as possible. Remember the next day, the press reports on the White House Center focused on some lame skit that the president had done with somebody and prior. It, uh, an impo- yeah, an imitator, and right? It, yeah. The New York
1: Times didn't mention Colbert until Tuesday or Wednesday of that week.
2: Right. Now, this year, by all accounts, was one of the just absolutely lamest Right. entertainment, whatever, the, the whole the, the, the difference between one year to the next and the amount of coverage it got is really was quite striking, and uh, it just to me is an example of, of just how fearful the press seems to have been and still continues to be of the Bush administration.
1: Yeah, the Colbert was 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 an amazing event because you know normal people could watch it on C-SPAN, right. and uh, I think Colbert's routine you know you could buy it as a as a podcast on iTunes and i think for a while it was the most popular podcast in the history of iTunes i mean it i think it was a 20 i think it's 20 minutes yes. will probably go down as one of the great you know comedy routines political comedy routines uh of a generation i mean if you listen to it it is absolutely priceless just in terms of pure comedy writing um mm-hmm. uh, and yet right the next day i think both the washington post and the new york times uh Never mentioned him. He was—he didn't exist, and there was this imposter, you know, this impersonator mm. got the headlines. And then when there was such a fuss online, and people, you know, thank God for online, I remember Huffington Post went crazy, saying, why did you ignore this? Then people like Richard Cohen and other, you know, columnists in D.C., they wrote columns saying, well, he, Richard, uh, Stephen Colbert just wasn't funny. I know funny, uh, Richard <laughs> Cohen wrote. He said Stephen Colbert yeah. was not funny.
2: Yeah, he bombed.
1: He bombed. Yeah. And there's sort of this sniff, <laughs> yeah. sniff, like... Uh, yeah. Uh, and really, I don't think they might be making fun of Bush when he called the press clowns. Yeah, uh, that's, that was striking a little close to home. Well, what is uh, so? And now, right now, everyone's doomed with Rich Little.
2: Right. Well, what did he say? <laughs> the press should do that. Write that novel they've always wanted to write about the intrepid reporter. You know, yeah. it was pretty. It was class, classic. Right. And yeah. It says, you know, fiction. Fiction, right? Right. Very was, funny stuff. But, so I just want to contrast, and let's get into something that is is also uh, put Media Matters in in the in the spotlight, which is the situation uh, with Don Imus and how the how O'Reilly and and some of the others at Fox are reacting to 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 what you guys were doing.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Media Matters was the first to uh, spot the uh, the Don Imus uh, comment about the Rutgers basketball team. That's because. You know, the whole purpose of Media Matters is to monitor the press as close as possible in terms of 24-7. And, you know, I think he made this comment at something like 6 in the morning. But we have these young researchers who are, who are, who are listening and transcribing everything. And so we put an item up that day, and that really started the whole uh, cavalcade of events that led to uh, uh, IMIS's uh, firing seven or eight days later. Um uh, but now O'Reilly and, and Limbaugh and a lot of the others, I think, are, are totally spooked um, because you know, in Imus, they they sort of see there for the grace of God go I. Uh, I mean, it could happen to them. I mean, they say things that are are far more offensive than what Don Imus said, um, uh, and they know that if the advertisers ever got spooked, uh, it could be a real it could be a real problem. And so they've gone on. They've gone. They've launched this sort of crusade against Media Matters, and and uh, we're Stalinists, and uh, we're puppets of George Soros, and all these wonderful uh, conspiracy theories. <laughs> and all we do is transcribe shows and put the and, and put the transcripts up online. I mean that that's our sin. Uh, you know, Media Matters has been publishing uh, for three years. Uh, I doubt we've had to write. More than four corrections in, in in three years, we probably posted fifteen hundred items uh and and you know uh yeah. we don't make mistakes because all we're doing is telling you what people wrote and what people said uh but they uh, O'Reilly last night uh, just went totally off
0: what was uh, what was he doing on this
1: George Soros conspiracy uh-huh. uh and the funny part is we don't we don't get a dime from George Soros <laughs> with all the flack we get we you know.
2: Well, maybe Maybe, you will now. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding.
1: But but we don't get any money from George.
2: Maybe a good time to ask him. Um, I know, I know. Well, so this had to surprise you a little bit in the sense that you do, like you said, you've posted 1,500 of these kinds of stories and also a lot of film clips, and the rest of it, right. and guys like Savage and Neil Bortz and sure. Schre- Limbaugh, and, and all, yeah. all these guys, as you said, say things that are a lot worse, and, and, daily, and do it on a daily basis. Yeah. What is it about Imus that do you think just, was it the perfect storm, as I've heard it described? That they well, just norm- uh, unfortunately, slowly- a
1: lot of these right-wing guys, people just expect them to say offensive and crass and, and despicable things, and so it re- it's going to take really something pretty dramatic to sort of uh, displace them in any way. Don Imus is, uh, occupies a slightly different uh, 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 position within the media landscape. You know, he has lots of serious people on. Right. You know, he's just odd. He's this odd combination of shock, jock, and wonk. And that's always been sort of, in the last 10 years, that's been his real calling card. So when he says something so outrageous about uh, and, and picks such a peculiar ta- target, you know, in the past, you know, he's making fun of officials or journalists or people who are perceived to be in the public arena and, and you know, who needed a thick skin. You know, he went after the young women on the, on the basketball team. And I think a lot of people just thought that was uh, wildly inappropriate. But, again, he's really not seen as a far-right, you know, smear uh, talk show host. And so, A, a lot of his guests started to back away and then a lot of the mainstream advertisers started to back away. So I think that's why it created a momentum that a similar comment, you know, got, you know, Lord knows Rush Limbaugh said worse, had that 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 same chain of events hasn't happened um uh, yet. Uh but I'm I'm sure it will eventually. Uh you know, someone's going to say something outrageous enough um that uh that one of them one of these high-profile guys or girls, yeah. ladies, I think will get bumped, and uh, and I think that's why they're so freaked out, uh, because they realize that people are, at least in terms of Don Imus, he, people are being held accountable, yeah. and I think they realize they do say things that are so beyond the pale.
2: Do you think it, it did it mostly had to do with who he picked on? Is that is that where I said?
1: think that had an awful lot to do with it. Yeah. I think it all went off yeah. a lot. It, it, it was really no defending it, yeah. and I think people just sort of did a, a double or triple take. The comments themselves were obviously wildly offensive, yeah. uh, but these weren't these weren't young women in the public arena. They weren't right. in public policy. You know, they're trying to win a basketball game and and to tag them with such hateful comments. Uh, I think that was a, um, a one two that he just couldn't recover from. No
0: given the, uh, your success at media matters and and given that well people are watching colbert on iTunes and and uh, going to media matters online do you think that the press is the traditional press is pretty much finished right now that we're we're uh, witnessing a kind of transition right now right. where newspapers are going to disappear
1: very slow transition. Uh, I, I, I don't underestimate the the extraordinary amount of uh, influence and agenda-setting policy that the Times and Newsweek and NBC and, and Nightline and all the traditional uh, outlets still have. Um, I think they still have the ability, the sort of the knee-jerk ability, to uh, set the agenda and mm-hmm. things like that. Obviously, things are changing, uh, but I I think they're changing at a slower rate than maybe some other people see them changing. Uh, obviously, the stuff online, is, uh, what's happening online is sort of a godsend in terms of these new voices added to the debate. In terms of Media Matters, all of the uh, mainstream reporters and journalists um, are paying attention to Media Matters because we just don't document document what the crazy Rush Limbaugh say. We're also paying very close attention to, you know, what the New York Times and Newsweek and Time and misinformation or, or stories that can't be supported there um so the mainstream political press corps is, is still is paying a lot of attention to media matters and is very uh i think uh, increasingly cognizant when we uh when we call them out for uh, factual errors and things like that
2: want one we're running very short on time here i'm sorry i didn't realize we were so so uh so close um you're having a tremendous impact on. Well, you're having an impact on the mainstream media, uh, and we continue to see that the the, uh, the blog have the bloggers have an effect. What do you have to say about the conservative bloggers? I know you just re- recently wrote an article about them and their uh, their ability to tell the truth.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, you know it's funny. The conservative bloggers, they, they no one knew it at the time, but they obviously peaked during the Dan Rather controversy and right. the 204 campaign with the. National Guard memos. I think a lot of people, including the bloggers, thought this was going to be the beginning of this sort of third media universe, and they were going to dictate the news, or they were certainly going to hold the press accountable, and they were going to... uh, You know, that turned out to be their peak. I mean, it has just been downhill ever since. Uh, They just, you know, they get... They hatch all these conspiracy theories. None of them ever come true, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're just sort of flailing around you know the liberal bloggers are 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 extraordinary organizers they raise money for candidates they're these uh, you know incredible articulate writers and press critics and and the re- and the right wing bloggers are are just sort of these name callers yeah. i mean they don't organize they don't raise money they don't have much of an impact on on the general debate uh they're obsessed with the losing war in iraq uh and uh they just sort of scurry around questioning the patriotism of anyone who, who, who writes negative things about the war. So I think if we look back, you know, the, the right-wing bloggers peaked in 2004, and uh, the liberal blog. if you look at sort of a parallel universe, I mean, the liberal bloggers are, are, are so far ahead of where the conservative bloggers are. I mean, they're, all, they're almost out of sight at this point in terms of who has the momentum and the energy and the new ideas going forward
2: well it it does speak kind of to to uh, the reasons we have newspapers uh in in the first place in the in the formation of our of our republic and all how it was the liberals who were really more uh, about the accountability of people in power and and that's and that's kind of what the the liberal bloggers it seems to me what they're they're about
1: well the liberal bloggers are just more serious and just more accurate yeah. i mean you know uh, the conspiracy theories that the right wing bloggers Uh, You know, I've been battling Powerline, which is this very popular right-wing blog. Mm. uh, You know, one of the bloggers said, uh, looking back, said, you know, most of what the Swift Boat veterans said has never been disputed or discredited, which is just like this wildly revisionist. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but I mean, that's nothing for them. I mean, they say silly things like that all the time. But my point is, I can't think of a single conspiracy theory that a major liberal blogger has ever launched and propagated for days and weeks, like some of the right-wing bloggers do, and have it implode to be totally bogus, and and anyone would take a blogger like that seriously. Yeah. But if you look at Powerline and Michelle Malkin, I mean, they've got you know nine, ten, eleven of these you know wildly embarrassing conspiracy <laughs> theories, and they just sort of keep plodding along. um... So. You know they operate, yeah, I think your point about newspapers is is right in the in the general sense, in that liberals and conservatives have a different view in terms of facts and accuracy
2: and power accountability
1: yeah exactly yeah. and 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 respect for the press i mean right. liberal bloggers do a lot of criticism of the press, but that's because they want it to get better. conservative bloggers do a lot of criticism of the press that's because they you know, want
2: to get rid of it, right? Right. Well, Eric Bowler, th- we want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is Lap Dogs: How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. Thanks for uh, for being here on Weekly Signals. Oh,
1: my pleasure. Right. Talk thank to you, you soon.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. dot com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles.
2: Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.